Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is Ramin Rizvani, Senior Associate at Ankara Moisson Architects here in Portland, Oregon, and my former firm. We worked together, although I don't know that we actually worked on a project together. Ramin is a senior project designer at AMA with a focus on office and housing projects. He also, which I thought this was really interesting, he also studied landscape architecture in school, and that has had a significant impact on how he thinks about the built environment. He is very influenced by nature and natural systems, fractal geometry, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've ever said those two words together out loud and efficiency. He believes that coordination with subs as early as possible in the design process yields significantly higher quality projects. He is also very interested in interdisciplinary design. The project we are going to talk about today is 250 Taylor Street in Portland, for which incidentally, got to give a shout out to my own firm, my firm RDH Building Science was the enclosure consultant for. So here are some 250 Taylor stats. The project is a 10-story, approximately 230,000 square foot speculative, creative, Class A office building. Remind me to ask you about that later. At the edge of the Yamhill Historic District in downtown Portland. The project was completed in 2020, according to my trolling on the internet. The site is one half of a Portland city block, 100 feet by 200 feet. The project has one of the largest roof decks in Portland with an offset building core to the mid-block property line to allow for long-term flexibility. The building is post-tensioned with unitized curtain wall and integral 
can never say that word, terracotta, including a custom Kynar paint finish to complement the terracotta. A lot of time was spent on the glazing design and specifications to blend spandrel with vision and eliminate the strong horizontal banding that you typically see with curtain wall. The very strong verticality and continuity of elements all the way up the building required significant coordination. The cornice of the adjacent historic auditorium building overhangs the property line. Accommodating this encroachment had a large role in the development of the design language for the entire project. For this building, a long-term contract was signed with a full building tenant deep into the design process. That sounds like fun. Which stipulated that it be designed to essential facility requirements, meaning remaining functional in case of an earthquake. This required significant structural redesign, which presented many challenges in itself. For our listeners, go search out this building because it is a, a gorgeous building. It's beautiful. Um, I went and looked and I'm like, I need to go downtown so I can check that out. So we talked some stats on the building, which are a little bit dry. Tell me the story of this building. What's the history and, and what were the goals and aspirations behind this project? This thing went through many, many iterations uh, to land where we are today. So we really took a step back and looked at the whole neighborhood. And it's perched right at the edge of the Yamhill Historic District in Portland. And it's this interesting in-between space. There, to the south is uh, a lot of larger buildings, kind of our go- governance district. Uh, and then there's this Yamhill Historic District. So we spent a lot of time down in that Yamhill District studying the existing buildings, looking at what was there. And there's a lot of masonry and there's a lot of deep kind of earth blend masonry. So we tried to find something that felt modern yet respectful of that context, basically. So we we landed on this terracotta, which is, we were thinking of it as a modern iteration of the historic structural masonry. Uh, a lot of those buildings also have like a really strong verticality as is kind of inherent in structural masonry, like really strong pilasters in that neighborhood. So we use that as a foundation basically for the design. And then also the adjacent building, there's this auditorium building, that's a historic building. And uh, as you mentioned, the corners of that building encroaches over to, over the property line, which is kind of a weird condition because we have to deal with it, even though it was on this property, we had to you know avoid it and make sure that in a seismic event, our building doesn't hit it or knock anything loose or anything like that. So that ended up actually determining some of the design language of the building. And where we ended up, it's, it's basically these really strong vertical bands of terracotta that are different widths. And in between them are glass. So it's just vertical pilasters of terracotta alternating with glass. It's all unitized curtain wall. So the, the terracotta is actually inserted into the unitized curtain wall. What that means is that the curtain wall is built in panels in a shop, and then they're trucked out to site and they're tilted up basically they get delivered onto each floor and they're tilted up into place curtain wall is the non-structural outer covering of a building designed to keep the weather out and the occupants in the curtain wall facade does not carry any structural load from the building other than its own dead load the curtain wall of a building is often considered a system integrating frame wall panel and weatherproofing materials so yeah this cornice encroachment 
meant that we basically, or the way that we resolved that was we actually inflected the building there. And not only did that allow us to kind of reference the scale of that auditorium building, but it gave us a language to use around the whole rest of the project. So we were looking for something coherent, something simple that gave us a lot of variation and interest and didn't take away from that historic masonry reference. Tell me about some of the most complex pieces of this project, either in design or in construction or both problems you had to solve or complexities. You know, you, you just talked a little bit about getting the terracotta and curtain wall, you know, all, all working together. But what were some of the things that, uh, you know, made you tear your hair out a little bit as you were trying to work through this design or build it during construction? There were quite a number of things, actually. Um, <laughs> Oh, good. We love those. <laughs> I mean, trying to make it appear simple and clean is really difficult. Uh, and it takes a lot of coordination. And, you know, for example, one of the things that we did, I mean, we, I mentioned this really strong verticality. There are lines that you can, I mean, if you stand at the sidewalk and put your face on the building, you carry these lines all the way up the building through to the parapet. And that happens through a couple of different materials sometimes and through different floors and, and plane changes and coordinating, for example, like from the canopies to the ground floor non-unitized curtain wall, which is installed differently than the unitized curtain wall above, to the curtain wall and to the parapet cladding, things like that. Getting that all coordinated was really difficult. The choice of glazing was actually a really difficult process to, to get it right. So curtain wall, typically you end up with spandrel sections, which are opaque sections of glazing. That usually happens over floor plates, etc. So you, you get this really strong horizontal banding in curtain wall usually that happens at every floor level because it's got to be fire rated and you usually have a, you know, a section of wall, you know, especially an office to put desks up against, etc. So you end up with these spandrel sections. And on this project, we ended up choosing a fairly reflective glass so that at the spandrel sections, we could get the spandrel to look the same as the vision glass. That was one of the, one of the things. It was also tuning the amount of visible light transmittance for it to be appropriate in the office. And also we wanted to use a reflective glass to literally reflect the historic district back on itself so that when you look at the building, you see reflections of the historic in it. And actually tuning that performance and the reflectance level of the vision glazing to the spandrel was really difficult. And we just, in the end, kind of lucked out that it worked perfectly. I mean, you can't really tell that it's different. How did you make that happen? I mean, who did you have to get involved to? Because I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, glazing specs are one of my least favorite spec sections to write. I'm listening to you say that, and it's almost making me twitch. Like, <laughs> oh my god! Like, I, how do you even write that spec? How did how did you solve that? Who who helped you with those calculations? I would imagine this isn't something that just every architect knows. No, and it's actually something that gets neglected a lot of the time. You know, glazing can be an afterthought, and it's kind of a problem. I mean, actually, we did a project years ago that had glazing on the ground floor that was really reflect. I mean, typically you want, especially when there's retail, you want a high visibility at the ground floor so that you can see in. And when that's not the case, when it's reflective on the ground floor, it can be really bad for retail on the ground because people can't see in, they don't know what's going on, and you lose this energy 
and ends up feeling like a wall. So if people aren't being careful, you know, that can happen. And then just like a not an appropriate level of visible light for the function, like residential, for example, you want as high of VLT as you can get, and then you can tune it with window treatments on the inside so that people can close blinds. But with office, you want a little bit less so you don't get glare on the computer screens and things like that. Yeah, I think I'd be calling my my glazing rep and saying, solve this problem for me because I don't even know where to start. <laughs> don't even know. So that's part of it. I mean, we we dealt with the with the manufacturer, talked through it with them. And they usually will have some recommendations for like at spandrel versus vision, unless you're using a little, a little bit more of a reflective glass. Like from the outside, glazing tends to look just kind of black, even if it's super clear. So it can be really tough to get that to look right. But and and you know as I mentioned, I think in the end we just kind of lucked out too, and we did a, we looked at a lot of samples of spandrel versus vision and tried to look at it in different light, but. It's kind of similar to, you know, if you take paint samples and you look at a small swatch uh, when you're going to repaint your house or something, and then you get it on the wall, it can look night and day different. And it's way more so with glazing because there's so many more variables. Sounds really scary. I'm crossing my fingers. I never have to work on that particular issue. (laughs) Um, Did you know who was going to be the tenant when you first started it? No, actually, part of what happened there. So it, it was intended to be a speculative class A office. Speculative or spec buildings are built without a tenant in mind, but with the goal of attracting tenants during or shortly after construction. Typically, spec building tenants include professional services firms, call centers, and other businesses. Speculative class A office buildings are the cream of the crop. They have the best locations in construction for their market, boast high-end tenant improvement, and high-quality first-class finishes. As the name implies, these buildings are built to impress. About halfway through the design development phase, the developer was kind of courting a a long-term tenant. And one of the requirements was that it be designed to essential facility standards. And this particular essential facility standard meant that it needed to be designed to withstand seismic forces that are one and a half times what a normal building would be. It's the same category that hospitals and police departments, fire departments, things like that are designed to, so that they can remain operational after an event. So we basically had to go back in and redesign the building structurally. And we were already at a position where we had some really (laughs) uh, tight tolerances and we were struggling already. And then you know, some of the columns and, and shear walls increased in width by four or five inches in some places, sometimes a little bit more than that. And then the core, the building core is offset. So the building core is kind of on the south wall of the building. Typically, you want the building core to be at center of mass to be able to resist overturning forces and for shear resistance. When it's eccentric like this, it makes the structural calculations more difficult. So that was another challenge is that we had this offset core to create a lot of open floor plate for long-term flexibility. But because that core was offset already, it made that structural revision even more difficult. Listening to what you've told me so far about this building and some of the challenges you've already told me about, what disciplines were really key that you worked with your consultants, different consultants, 
for you to get through some of these things and get it where you need it to be? How did how did your whole consultant coordination go? Who saved your butt? Um, well, really, I mean, the majority of the skin of the building is curtain wall. And we had worked with uh, Harmon for pre-construction services on the building for the curtain wall design. Uh, and they were actually the installer of the curtain wall also. So we got them on as soon as possible in the design process to kind of work through all the issues that might come up with the curtain wall. And doing a unitized curtain wall is really awesome because it accelerates the construction speed. Just as a side note, one of the advantages and one of the reasons we actually went to a unitized curtain wall was that it allowed us to avoid scaffolding. It was all installed from inside the building. Oh, wow. Um, basically, we didn't have to do any exterior scaffolding. Um, you, you had asked earlier, what were some of the challenges being downtown? Well, that was one of them that was kind of solved by doing this. There was a central crane that was able to pull these, these panels or deliver the panels onto each floor and then kind of pop them up and stand them out. And, and then there was a crew that locked them down. So working with the curtain wall pre-construction services was absolutely critical to the success of the project and just working back and forth with different subs. I think this is something that was a part of architecture in the past that's been lost, right? An architect would design a building, but they'd be designing it. And then they'd have a, you know, a craftsperson that's installing, you know, whatever system, and they would have some artistic freedom to make it as, as nice as they, as they could, as they were capable of. And that's something that we really have been trying to do is get connected with the craftspeople that are actually going to be building the building, or that at least know exactly what they're doing and intimately know each system that we're trying to design and work with them as soon as possible in the process. Because almost without fail, you can design the hell out of a building and design every detail and get everything drawn up. But when it goes into construction, some of that goes out to the window because the sheet metal guy looks at your details and says, well, I'm not going to do it like that. <laughs> I'm going to do it like this because I know this material. I know these systems and what you drew doesn't make sense. It's, you know, it's funny you say that because over and over again since I started this podcast, I keep hearing a couple of things. The maybe we should get back to the master builder model where the design and the art, uh, construction are all under one roof and get your your contractors and your subs involved early and get they're the ones that build it. They know how to build it and build it right. Right. And I keep hearing we you know we design really great things but sometimes we create inefficient detailing that could be much simpler. And, and be more efficient during construction. And they just have such great input. So I just love to hear more and more people talking about that and actually doing it. Um, give me some idea of some of the products and materials you used in this building and how that how that all went, what you really liked, what you didn't. Yeah, so we used a, an aluminum plate for a lot of the metal. And the way that we arrived there was kind of a lengthy process. Originally, we were talking about using Corten. Well, they actually brought us a sample of Corten that they were originally looking to use and asked us if we could match this. Dell Stevens, president and CEO of Dura Industries in Portland, Oregon, 
tells us more about this detail and how his company works with designers to customize the perfect coding solution. By the next day, we had three different samples for them, and and uh, they came back down the shop, and their their comment was, "Wow, if you can get this close in a day, we're confident that you can produce something that we'll like." Because of concerns here and there about staining on the glass and down the building, we didn't go that direction. And there are types of Corten that are supposed to minimize that, like they they have like a chemical acceleration that they do to get to the fully encased. Core 10 so that it doesn't, it's not supposed to leak, but I think there were still some concerns about whether or not that was going to happen. But we ended up using aluminum and develop a custom Kynar finish for the aluminum. And that was a really interesting process. That was another one, along with the glazing, developing this finish took a long time and we probably went through 25 different iterations. You know, your prime coat, your top coat are generally enough for a PVDF coating. This one also has a clear coat on it, which is actually to help dull it down. Your normal liquid PVDF coating is about 35 units of gloss, and and Ramin wanted it to be duller than that, and so we actually had to put a clear coat on it that's about five units of gloss to dull it down. But at the same time, that clear coat helps protect it. Uh, They sprayed uh, graffiti on it, and the building manager called me and wanted to know how to touch it up, and... I told them, don't touch it up, just take some solvent and wipe it off. And, and um, so they, were, they weren't quite sure. So I took some down and showed them how and wiped it nice and clean and as if it was a brand new panel again. Right. That is one of the advantages of a painted surface. It's pretty solvent resistant. And they have an artist, a master craftsman there that did the color mixing and did all the spraying. And it really, it truly is an art. In any coding process, consistency is the key. Having perfected that aspect of their work, the team at Dura was able to take things a step further. And with just a little experimentation and innovation, create an entirely new product line. Again, Dell Stevens. Well, the Smithsonian, uh, the African American Museum, we had 18 months to develop a color for that and a look. And we originally developed four colors that they allowed us to name but they were just kind of ho-hum on them. And um, about a week before their final decision as to which way they were going to go, one of my painters came in and goes, hey, I want to show you something. And so I went out and looked, and I go, okay, what'd you do? And he goes, well, I primed it heavy, and I baked it. And I primed it heavy again with a different color primer, and I baked it. And then I painted it black, and I baked it again. And uh, then I turned the electrostat off on the gun so it wouldn't wrap, and I shot top color on it, but I adjusted the top color, added a lot of gold to it, and I shot it at an angle so that way it wouldn't get colored down into the nooks and crannies, and uh, shot clear coat, but he added um, some red to the clear coat. We don't normally add color to clear coat, but it created that uh, real dramatic color shift that you see on the Smithsonian, and you know when it's cloudy, that thing will look almost brown. When the sun comes out, it'll look reddish gold. And that was the first time we had attempted to do something that was unique and different like that. We finally ended up on a finish that we really loved that matched the terracotta really well, that went well with glazing, uh, and we were very happy with. So here's the part where I want to know what lessons did you learn? Because it's usually when you learn them is when they start, you start building it. Tell me about some of your lessons learned from this project. Things did go 
pretty smoothly actually on this project. I was actually really surprised that we didn't have any kind of major conflicts. Um, usually something, you know, like you've mentioned, something comes up um, right. that can be really significant. I think one of the things that came up was our canopy design. We wanted to have a really thin, almost knife edge canopy. And there's a design element in the building. Um, and basically, you know, I mentioned that there were these, there was a strong verticality with the terracotta pilasters. There are a couple of fins that run through the whole building from ground to, to top. And those fins divide the sections of terracotta into different sizes, basically. So if you look at the facade, I think on any given facade, there are three different sizes of terracotta pilaster, and they get smaller in one direction and they get larger in the other direction, but these fins divide them. So as you get down to the ground floor, those fins kind of turn and they turn and turn into the canopy for the building. So we wanted this canopy to be super thin, but we didn't want it to be a single plate because we had to, we wanted to integrate lighting. We wanted to integrate water shedding into the design. So there are these perpendicular LED strip lights that happen, I think every 10 feet or so. But that design took so much time and coordination. The way that we had designed it originally, when it came down to the actual sheet metal, you know, like coordinating with the final sheet metal contractor, it just didn't work based on some of the qualities of the materials that we didn't have full understanding of at the time or efficiencies that they could gain by doing it slightly differently. So there were some areas also like where the canopy transitioned from canopy to soffit and it's the same okay. material, but it was installed by a different contractor. The soffit was all in the curtain wall manufacturer's scope and the canopies were in the sheet metal subs scope. And in the curtain wall, I, I want to say it was a 3 inch plate and the actual canopy is quarter inch plate. It's a different system. It's attached differently. It does slightly different things. The joints are done a little bit differently, but coordination between those two to make them work properly and to make those lines continuous all the way up the building was just insane. So what did you end up doing? I mean, did, ultimately, did you just have to redesign it to something else that would work? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, part of what happened is we ended up switching installers partway through okay. the project. And the people that we had designed it with initially had a different approach than who ended up actually doing the installation. And so that was part of where that discrepancy came in and part of why we had to redesign it. So we ended up having different recommendations from the different sub. It was a difficult process and we totally redesigned it. I think we came, what we came up with works probably better than what we had designed initially. And it's a super clean canopy. Everything lines up really well. I was really happy with how it turned out. And so when you redesigned it, did that take a whole lot less time? Because you already knew all the challenges that you had to deal with? Or, or did you just end up spending double the time to end up getting the canopy you wanted? It was kind of, I mean, we could have just redesigned it and made compromises and done it fairly quickly, but we really wanted it to be right. I mean, this is like one of the main, it, it's a significant feature on the building. And so it was a really important detail to be dialed properly. And it was worth it to spend the time to make it how exactly how we wanted it. And I think we got there. 
Well, in this in this day and age of just take the quick, easy VE and throw something else up there, oftentimes because schedules are so tight and budgets are so tight, I love to hear that a firm stood by their design and what was really going to make that building aesthetically pleasing. And even though you had to change things out or change it, your design drastically to make it work, that you didn't sacrifice that just because, you know, during construction, it kind of blindsided you that you stayed, you stayed pure to your design because not everybody gets to do that a lot these days. Yeah. And actually on this project, I was actually really lucky to have been able to work on this project. And really due to a bunch of crazy circumstances, I ended up working on this thing from the very beginning to the very end. I was you know, intimately involved in construction administration and the initial project design and all, you know, everything in between. And that's really rare. It's drastically rare. And God, what a great learning experience. I mean, I can just imagine how much you learned through the course of just that one project of being able to take it from beginning to end. And, you know, a lot of firms will just swap somebody else in for CA and take that designer and go start them on the next new project. Well, how do you best learn to design really well? You watch it get built. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, yeah, and on this project was actually really was transformational for me. I mean, I had done construction administration before a bunch of times. I mean, I've been in the industry for a long time, but never like quite so intimately on something that I was like really passionate about, like this project, and then have the support to be able to, as you say, follow through with all those things in in construction administration and make sure that stuff was done the way that we wanted it to be done and, and followed through with, with a consistent vision for the project. I mean, I think as you said, I mean, it's rare. Looking back on and how lucky you were to do this whole project beginning to end, from your initial early designs aesthetically to what the building ended up being at the end of construction, and it's a gorgeous building. Oh, thank you. How close does that finished building look to the original design you came up with in the very beginning? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, as I mentioned before we went through three or four different iterations of this project that were pretty different but we actually went through design review with a completely different design and oh wow to be frank they just didn't like it and i think what we came back with i'm 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 really happy with the with the project and i think in the end it was a really good thing i like the initial project too i think it could have been could have been a great project i think it was just a difference of opinion there but after that, when we came back and did the redesign, it's almost exactly the way that we designed it in that final iteration. So your final question, if you were king of the world in our industry, or just king of the world in our industry, king of the AEC world, what is, you do whatever you wanted, what is the number one first single thing you would change so that we would do a better job on our buildings? Early collaboration. And, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, interdisciplinary design, like really integrating as many different trades and disciplines as soon as you can in the design process, I think results in significantly better projects. And I don't know if that's a, I should probably wield that power more, <laughs> more fully than that, but 
uh, if I were king of the AEC industry, I, I think just that singly could really improve the quality of projects uh, significantly. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more because that is pretty much a, my number one is I would just make people flip and talk to each other. Um, we are so in these silos sometimes in our industry where one little phone call or, or email or quick meeting could save potentially tens, hundreds of hours later down the road instead of just assuming. We do a lot of assuming. Okay, yeah, structural's taking care of that. You sure? Sure about that? Or you want to wait till construction to find out? Well, Ramin, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing information about this project. I encourage everybody to go out and check it out. It's a beautiful building. I personally would like to go see it at some point if I can. One of these days, I'm going to go see some of these buildings we're talking about, especially since some of them are in my city. But thank you again for coming today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.